1 Samuel chapter 12. Remember the whole theme of of 1 Samuel is lessons from the heart, and so we've been getting lessons from some good examples and then lessons from, you know, some bad examples. Right now we're in in a situation that we're going to get a little bit of both in this chapter here. Saul is finally crowned as king. The nation's united behind him. Israel throws a huge celebration at Gilgal to commemorate the momentous occasion. That's where we left off in chapter 11. So everything's good for the nation now, right? Uh, Not quite. (laughs) Not quite. Not really. Uh, Because the way they got here was wrong. The way they got here was wrong. And so before everyone heads back home from this celebration, Samuel confronts the nation so that they can move forward correctly. That they won't, you know, stay in this defiance toward the Lord, but rather, you know, that they would have hearts that are submitted to him. Because the only way Israel can move forward correctly is to have a heart of submission. So chapter 12, we begin in verse 1. It says, And Samuel said unto all Israel, Behold, I have hearkened unto your voice and all that you said unto me, and I have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you. And I am old and gray-headed, and behold, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my childhood unto this day. Behold, here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or of whose hand have I received any bribe to blind mine eyes therewith? And I will restore it to you. And they said, well, you have not defrauded us nor oppressed us, neither have you taken aught of any man's hand. And he said unto them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found aught in my hand. And they answered, he is witness. What's going on here? Well, Samuel, he's confronting the rebellion against his leadership. God raised him up to be the judge. And and as he explains to them, okay, you're here, everybody's happy, you got what you wanted, but let's address how we got here. (laughs) And how we got here was not good. You know, Samuel starts off by explaining, you have a king now, I'm stepping back. In verses 1 and 2, Samuel says, And then, behold, I have hearkened unto your voice in all that you said to me and have made a king over you. I've done everything you demanded. It was indeed a rocky start with this king stuff, but things look like they're going well now. But you need to understand the consequences of this, this change because it does change everything. He says, behold, the king walks before you. I mean, he's leading you now. I am old. I'm gray-headed. He says, behold, my sons are with you. I'm no longer your leader. I'm old and gray-headed. I'm going to be transitioning out of this role. Saul's now your leader. You're not going to be looking to me anymore. I've also removed my sons from leadership. They're with you now instead of with me and Saul up here as leaders. They're right out there with you. They're not judges anymore. Imagine how difficult that must have been for Samuel. But he did the right thing. They were not good men. They were not good leaders. He removed them. He says, behold, my sons are with you. But then he says this, I'm still here. He says, I have walked before you from my childhood unto this day. The phrase walk before you doesn't mean I've I've lived rightly before you or even that you could see my whole life. It literally means to lead a flock like a shepherd would. He says, from the days of my youth, I've led you like a shepherd. I've taken care of you. I have been faithful, you know? And since he had been faithful to shepherd them and care for them from day one, from his youth, it meant that asking for a king was completely uncalled for on their part. He says, behold, here I am, witness against me. In other words, here I am. What reason did you have for rebelling against my leadership, for rejecting my leadership? 
you know? Witness against me before the Lord and before his king, his anointed, you know? Bring your accusations in front of the Lord and before your new leader. Because I don't just want to leave here with a clear conscience, which I have. I want to leave here with a clear name. He says, have, whose ox have I taken? The word there means to seize. Did I steal anyone's ox? Did I steal anyone's donkey? Whom have I defrauded? The word there means to treat a disadvantaged member of society unjustly. In other words, did I ever take advantage of my authority and my power, my influence? Did I ever take advantage of someone who was disadvantaged? Whom have I oppressed? The word there means to to crush someone. It usually means of, of causing harm through violence. Did I ever use my authority or power to violently, you know, make people follow me? Of whose hand have I received any bribe to blind my eyes therewith? Say it now and I'll restore you. I leave this role with a clear conscience, but I want to know. You know, do you think I've done a good job as a leader? Do, you, do, you have a, do I have a clear name in front of you? You know, it's interesting. They said unto him, you have not defrauded us nor oppressed us, neither have you taken aught of any man's hand. There's almost a bit of shell shock in their answer there, you know. Uh, no, you, you haven't done any of that. Why are you asking us this? You see, they hadn't realized the wrong they'd committed against Samuel by asking for a king. Samuel surely wasn't perfect, but he'd been a good leader and with unassailable character. He's one of the godliest people we find in all of Scripture. The people could trust him, and they did so their entire life. He never took advantage of them, of them, but they had treated him like a failure in the end. And so by admitting publicly that Samuel hadn't done anything worthy of being rejected, they actually condemned themselves as those who have done him wrong. And so that's why Samuel says, the Lord, in verse 5, he says, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed. He's, he's, the Lord has heard what you've said today, and your king, the one who can punish you right now for your wrong, he has heard your confession that I didn't do anything wrong to you, that you have not found aught in my hand. <laughs> and now you can see that it's starting to dawn on them a little bit. They said, he is witness. <laughs> Whose head's going on the chopping block here? You know, I'll get to this in a moment. I think it's important to bring up something. And I realize not everyone may agree with me on this. However, I do think it worthy to point out that Samuel defends his time as a judge by appealing to his personal character, not his policies or procedures as a leader. There are many in the church, many church leaders, who are claiming that leaders should be chosen based on their policies and procedures rather than character. I would ask them, can you please show me where you find such a principle in Scripture? Because I do not find that principle anywhere in Scripture. Every leader I look at in the Bible, whether they were a prophet, a judge, pastor, deacon, king, they were all, their selection was always based on character requirements. Not even once are their policies examined or their procedural plans examined. God says it's righteousness that exalts a nation and wickedness is a reproach to any people. So God's evaluation of kings and princes is always based on their character. And God condemns them if their character was evil even when they brought prosperity to the nation every single time. Proverbs is full of wisdom about what makes a good leader. What I have seen is that church leaders have decided we don't need God's wisdom on these issues anymore. 
our understanding of history, politics, and economics is superior to that simplistic type of idealism, to which I would say, beware ignoring Scripture. Beware leaning on our own understanding, because the only way to a straight path is doing things God's way. The only way to a straight path is trusting the Lord with all our hearts and not leaning on our own understanding. Now, we look at what Samuel does here, and it can almost sound a little vindictive, like, yeah, I'm not the king anymore. This guy is, and now I'm going to tell him to get you because now I've got you guilty on record. But I don't think Samuel's trying to be vindictive here. In fact, I don't think Samuel exposes their injustice towards him for any personal reasons. He does so because he doesn't want them repeating these mistakes after he's gone. Because their wrong treatment towards him is evidence of a much deeper problem in their lives. Look at verse 6. He goes on to say, and Samuel said unto the people, it is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron and that brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. In other words, he says, this problem didn't start with me as your leader. This is a problem that stems all the way back to the first leaders God raised up, Moses and Aaron. So he says, now therefore, stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and to your fathers. Your rebellious attitude was there from day one. So I want you to stand still. The phrase here means to present yourself to the Lord. It actually means to prepare to defend yourself before the Lord. It's similar to calling a witness to the stand. You know, you're going to make a defense of yourself. And so he says, come up, present yourself that I may reason with you. It means to make an argument in a court of law. I'm going to make an arg- my arm, I present my argument to you and, you, and you're going to listen to me because it's important. Of all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did for you and your fathers. He says, I'm going to do this before the Lord. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. The Lord is the judge of all the earth, and he will have the final say whether I agree or not, whether you agree or not. So I want to make my argument before the Lord, he says, which will become important later on. And what he wants to argue before them is that God had never failed them throughout the entirety of their relationship with him. And therefore, they had no reason to complain about the system of leadership that the Lord set up for them. That's his argument. God never failed you in your entire relationship with him, and therefore, it was wrong for you to complain about the system of leadership he set up. And so he begins with his argument in verse 8. He says, when Jacob was come into Egypt, and your fathers cried unto the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, which brought your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place, the promised land. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the host of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. So he starts off here by saying, listen, when Jacob came down into Egypt and the the Egyptians enslaved them, your fathers cried unto the Lord, God, help us out, get us out of this mess. And what happened? Well, he says, the Lord sent Moses and Aaron which brought forth your fathers out of Egypt and brought them to this beautiful land that he had promised to Abraham and his descendants. Now, God didn't owe Israel anything. He didn't have to do any of these things. We we read in the book of Deuteronomy, we read in the book of, of Exodus, when God set up all these laws, it was because they had learned all these horrible things in Egypt. They had become idolaters in Egypt. They had forgotten the truths that Abraham lived by and they were, you know, living in sin. God didn't have to answer those cries. He could have ignored them. But he did something marvelous for Israel instead. Brought them into the promised land. But verse 9 says, 
when they forgot the Lord, you know, the word there means to ignore, to overlook, to lose sight of something significant. Despite the awesome thing that God did to bring them out of Egypt and into the promised land, even though they forgot him, they forgot him, when they forgot him, it says that the Lord sold them into, and then he references these three instances that we covered in the book of Judges, so I'm not going to go over them again. These were the consequences, the consequences that were laid out in the covenant God made with them, in the, the law in Deuteronomy, in the law in Exodus, in the law in Leviticus. These were the consequences of violating their covenant with God. What he is explaining to them, he goes, God didn't initiate that process. It's not like God just woke up one day and go, said, you know, I don't want to keep my part anymore. I'm done. Have at him, Amorites, you know. Have at him, Philistines. God didn't do that. They did something to initiate this problem. They forgot the Lord. And when they did that, the Lord allowed these enemies, he sold them into their hands. They initiated this by rebelling against God, by rejecting his rule. And again, God didn't have to do anything to help Israel at that point. They'd already violated the covenant. They got what they deserved. But Samuel goes on in verse 10 to explain that the Lord showed mercy when they repented. And they cried unto the Lord, again, called out for help, and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and we have served, which means to worship the Balim and the Ashtoreth. These were idols. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. We'll worship you again, God. Now, God didn't have to bring them back into the covenant. They had violated it already. And it's almost interesting here. You know, he says, you guys, you know, you came to me and said, we want a king. We don't like the way God set things up. You know, it's not working out for us. And it's like Samuel's reminding me, he goes, have you forgotten you're the ones that asked God to step back into this leadership role. <laughs> you said you, you realized your mistake and you wanted him to lead you again. You, you acknowledged that it was your fault, not the Lord's fault, that you ended up in this mess. That the failure wasn't, the failure wasn't in the system that God set up for you, but it was in your failure to submit to it. You know, I have many areas in my life that still need growth. I'm far from God what want, want, God wants me to be you know, as a Christian. But if I'm to have any hope to progress forward in my spiritual growth, I have to be honest with myself and with him. I can't excuse my sin or blame the Lord's way of doing things. And that's what Israel had done. This really isn't our fault. You know, all these oppressions we've experienced over the years, we're tired of it. You know, and, and again, if I were God, thankfully I'm not, I would have said, well, then stop rebelling. It's, it's not my fault that these things are happening. It's your fault. But what did they do? No, it's the system God set up. You know, we've, got these, we've got too much haphazardness going on here. We don't know who our next judge is going to be, and we don't have any stability, and we, we can't unite the tribes. We need a king. That'll be the answer. Its problem isn't us. The problem's God's system. <laughs> and, and I will never, if that's my attitude, I will never be able to progress forward in my spiritual growth. You know, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess is homo logio. It means to say logio, homo, the same thing, to say the same thing. So when I'm confessing my sin, what I'm doing is I'm agreeing with what God says about my wrong behavior and how my behavior needs to change moving forward. That's what confession is. You know, it's not just going, I blew it. It's saying, no, Lord, not, my behavior is, you say it's supposed to be here, and it's here. And, and the only way that, that I'm going to 
get things right is to start going, doing what you say here. I need to change. I need to change my behavior. That's what confession is. Now, obviously, we need the Lord's help to change. I'm not, you know, implying legalism. That's not my point here. The idea is, though, the starting point of that change is agreeing with God, being humble. Now, when we do confess our sin, does that mean that life will be a path filled with gumdrops and rose petals, you know, afterwards? Of course not. But a heart of submission is the only way I can truly make spiritual progress. It's the only way. And so verse 11, when they did this back then, the Lord forgave and rescued them when they confessed their sin. And verse 11, the Lord sent Jerob Baal. That was the name that the people gave to Gideon when he answered God's call to be their judge. And then Bedan, we don't know who Bedan is. He wasn't even mentioned in the book of Judges. So this is some other leader that, that God raised up to rescue them. And Jephthah, who we already met in the book of Judges. And then, of course, Samuel references himself. He helped uh, them to victory over the Philistines. The Lord sent all these men and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And guess what? You dwelled what? What does it say? How did they dwell? Safe. Safe. The word there means in confidence, feeling secure. Wasn't that the reason they asked for a king? <laughs> we don't feel safe. We don't feel secure. And, and Samuel reminds them, when you cried out to the Lord and you submitted to him and he raised up a judge and, and you followed his lead, you were secure. You were confident. Everything was stable. The flaw was never with God's system. You were always safe and secure when you submitted to the Lord's leadership. So he asked the question, he goes, what changed this time to make you throw all that away for your own plan for a king? Verse 12. And here we get some extra information we didn't have before earlier in 1 Samuel. He says, and when you saw that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, no, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. You already had a king. Now, this is fascinating to me because Samuel doesn't tell any of this to us before when all of a sudden we hear about him and they come to Samuel and demand a king, right? We don't know there's an invasion. We don't know. What, the first time we hear about the Ammonites is when they lay siege to Jabesh Gilead we covered last week, right? We don't realize when we're reading chapter 11, that's the end of the invasion. The beginning has already happened. They've already conquered a bunch of area on the eastern side, the Transjordan, and now that's just the last place. So this is why they finally came to Samuel and said, it's not working, it's not working, we're being invaded, we need a king. Samuel finally confronts what brought them to this place. God's system's not working, Samuel. We've got another invasion. There's no way we can get all the tribes together to fight it. We're going to go down one tribe at a time, just like every other time before, and we'll experience another 20-year oppression, just like we did in the past. We need a king to unite us. That's their thought. That's their idea. We need a king. That's the only way we can be united. And being united is the only way we can defeat the Ammonites. And thus, we come full circle to their betrayal. Those past oppressions... Were they ever because of invasions? No. They were because they rebelled against the Lord. So here's the, their problem with their logic and why Samuel has to confront this. Their plan, <laughs> their plan to avoid a new period of oppression, which is always caused by not submitting to the Lord, 
Their plan to avoid a new period of oppression is what? Not submitting to the Lord. <laughs> That's like saying, you know, we're going to solve our mice problem by just getting more mice. You know? Well, that doesn't sound like a very good plan. No, it'll work, I swear. That's, that's the type of logic issue we've got here. They're not seeing things clearly, you know? Their entire argument for a king was flawed because they didn't own the reason they claimed they needed a king for in the first place. Their refusal to submit to the one who already was their king, the Lord. Every past period of oppression was God's discipline for their sin. So to combat this Ammonite invasion, what did they have to do? They just had to trust the Lord, right? Submit to him. But instead, they ignored all those past failures, and they just trusted themselves. And so when Samuel hears about the invasion and points this out, he goes, you know, a king's not, that's not the answer. You already have a king. The Lord's your king. They said no, nay, no. And that was their betrayal. They blamed the Lord's leadership failure for their past problems, and they said, we're not going to let God do it again. He's let us down in the past. We're not going to let him do it again. Give us a king. Now, the reason Samuel must point this out before stepping down is because they had never seen it this way. In their mind, they had never seen it that way before. They really thought that they were justified in their demand for a king. They thought it was logical, practical, and righteous. And that is the very definition of leaning on my own understanding, (laughs) is when I do something because I think it's logical, practical, and righteous, even when it directly contradicts Scripture. So even though things may look great right now, Samuel says, you guys still have a problem. And so in verse 13, he says this, now therefore, behold the king whom you've chosen, and whom you have desired. And behold, this, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both you and also the king that reigns over you continue following the Lord your God. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your fathers. Your king will not save you from me. (laughs) Samuel tells him, even though you got your way, the Lord's still in charge. He says, behold, look at your king. You, you, you wanted a king? Take, you know, take a good look at this man because he's the fruit of all your, your demands. All right? The fruit of your plans, he's here. But don't forget this. There's two beholds here. Behold the king whom you've chosen and whom you desired. And behold, the Lord has set a king over you, which means who's still the king? The Lord's still the king. He says, take a good look at the man that you picked, uh, that, that you asked for, not God picked him. That's my point, messed up my point. Take a good look at this man, the fruit of your plans. That's why he's here. But make sure you do, take a good hard look at why we're all here today. It's because you didn't pick him. <laughs> the Lord picked him. He's the one who got us to this point. He's the one who gave us victory over the Ammonites. And if you want things to keep going well, then you need to change your mindset. You need to repent. In verse 14, he says, if you will fear the Lord, but that's a, not a good translation. The phrase if means, oh, if only. Samuel's not communicating if you do this. He's saying his wish. If only, he says, you would fear the Lord. If only you would love what God loves and hate what he hates. 
If only you would serve him instead of other gods. If only you would obey his voice and not rebel, defy against the authority of his commandments. Then, if that, that my wish is if you'll do that, then I don't care that you have a king. I don't care that I'm not leading you. You'll be fine because the Lord will be your king as it should be in the beginning. But he says, if you will not do that, then God's going to do the same thing he did before. This very thing you're worried about will happen again. You know, Israel's trend had not been to fear the Lord, to serve him, and to, you know, submit to his commandments. They did worship other gods. They ignored God's word. They did what was ever right in their own eyes. But if they would do what Samuel wished for them, then things would be great going forward from here. But if they stick with their trend, if they don't repent, they're in big trouble. He says, you will end up in the very situation that you've worked so hard to avoid by setting up this king. You'll end up in the same situation and it won't matter that you have a king instead of a judge leading you. Now, that is a heavy charge. He has made his argument. He's laid it out before the Lord and before the king. But he says, I've got one more piece of evidence to bring. Look at verse 16. He says, now therefore stand and see this great thing. I'm not done yet. I've got one more argument to make. Stand and see this great thing, he says, which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? Wheat harvest, Israel has two seasons. They have the cold and rainy season from October till about mid-March, and then the hot harvest season, which there is no rain during that time. So when he says, is it not wheat harvest, he's saying, is it not the, the dry season? It's not, there's no rain going on right now. Is that not the case? And of course, they would all know that was true. It's harvest time. It's dry season. He goes, well, I will call unto the Lord, and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking you a king. And Samuel, he called unto the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. <laughs> A thunderstorm in the midst of the dry and hot season would be God's evidence in Samuel's case against the nation. You don't take my word for it? You think I'm, you know, you think I'm just picking you apart? You think I'm being hypercritical? You think I'm, you think I'm over-exaggerating the situation? I have one more piece of evidence to bring. Lord, can you send a storm and show all these people that you agree with my argument? And behold, this thunderstorm hits Israel right then and there. I can promise you as a pastor who's been counseling with people, I have prayed that God would send a thunderstorm sometimes <laughs> because I know they're not listening to me, you know? You know, Samuel, he so desires them to see the wickedness that's in their heart so that they would repent of that, that they would change, they would realize what they've done so that even though he's not their leader anymore, he's fine with that. They'll at least move forward with the right heart and the right mindset. That's what he wants for them. That's what any good leader wants. He wants the people he's leading to do well. And so, it says the people, when they saw this, they greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Their rebellion against God from day one was exposed. They finally got it. 
They realized what they had done to Samuel and to the Lord. And they knew they deserved whatever judgment God might bring before, you know, when they just said, you know, yeah, we, we, you're right. We are witnesses. You haven't done anything wrong. This is on us. And the king probably should do something about that. Well, now the Lord's showing that his displeasure at their behavior as well, showing that there was great wickedness in their heart and asking for a king. And so now they're thinking we are in big trouble. And so verse 19, it says, all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for, all, for your servants unto the Lord your God that we die not, for we have added unto all our sins this evil to ask us a king. That sounds like a confession to me. And that's all Samuel was looking for. But they're terrified. The phrase here, pray for your servants, actually means interpose yourself on our behalf. It doesn't just mean to pray. It means can you put yourself between us and God because we're pretty sure God's gonna kill us right now. And, and in the past, we know that God's leaders did that, like Moses did that. You know, He would interpose himself between God and us so we wouldn't die. Could you kind of do that for us right now because we're pretty sure we're gonna be crispy crittered any minute by this storm. They asked the same thing that, in this essence, Israel begged Moses to do. Remember when God's presence came down on Mount Sinai and he spoke, God with his own voice thundered from heaven and spoke the Ten Commandments? Can you imagine being an Israeli in the desert hearing that? You shall have no other gods before me. You look over at your wife and you go, we're dead. You haven't even gotten to two through nine or two through ten. We're dead. And then he's like, you know, Keep the Sabbath, honor your father and mother, don't commit adultery, don't steal. By that time, you're a puddle on the ground or there's a puddle lying at your feet. And you know what the Bible tells us they did? Wonderful response to the loving Lord Jesus showing up in their midst. They ran. They ran and they hid themselves behind their tents. And when Moses came out to him and said, hey, the Lord's not here to kill you. He's here to bless you. And they said, well, you go find out how he wants to bless us. You be a mediator between us and him because we don't want to hear his voice anymore. They were terrified because they knew they'd violated everything God just told them is how they're supposed to live. They knew they were guilty. This is the same exact response to the people I have here. They're, they see clearly now. Now they're going, oh my goodness, what have we done And they know what they deserve. And so they beg Samuel, you interpose yourself between us and the Lord. For we have added unto all our sins this evil to ask for a king. Guys, that's biblical confession right there. No excuses, you know, no demands, no excuses. God, if I do this, you'll get me out of my mess, right? No, there was none of that. They just said, we have added unto all of our sins this evil to ask us a king. It was a simple acknowledgement of what they had done, what they deserved, and their need for mercy. And like I said earlier, that's exactly what Samuel was looking for. That's exactly why he brought this up. Because that's what God was looking for. Spiritual progress is only possible when I walk in the light. In 1 John chapter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, it tells us, If we say that we, you know, well, let me read it to you so I don't mess it up. You don't want the will translation. This then is the message which we have heard from him, and we declare unto you that God is light, and in him him is no darkness at all. 
That's who God is. There, there's no wickedness, no evil, no darkness. So if there's ever darkness in us, he's going to notice it. You know, we can't hide it from him. Now, if we say that we have fellowship with him, that we're in this good relationship with God, but we're walking in darkness, it means conducting our life in darkness, then we're lying and we're not doing what's true. We're not practicing living the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, isn't that interesting? He doesn't say if we walk, if we, if we walk in perfectness. He doesn't say if we, we get everything right, if we never fail. He doesn't say that. He says, if we just walk in the light, well, who is the light? He's the light. If we walk in his light, which, and we allow it to shine on us, we're not covering anything up, you know, even though there may be darkness, there may be areas where we fail, as long as we're not covering it up, he says, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The word cleanse, it actually is in the present tense, so it, it means, it has the idea of continuity, you know, the blood of Christ is just continually cleansing us as we go through our lives. Aren't you happy for that? You know? I mean, every day, you know, if I blow it, I try to make sure I bring it to the Lord and go, God, that was wrong. I sinned. I, I don't want to do that anymore. I, I'm committing to you. I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do this, the what you say about it, instead of what I just did. That's going to be me going forward. You know, Lord, please forgive me. Please show me mercy. Please, you know, change me. I know that there are probably times I do things that I don't remember or maybe, you know, I didn't realize what I've done. And I'm so glad that if my heart is just a one that's always saying, Lord, when, I, when you bring it to my attention, when I'm aware of it in your word, you know, and, and I confess it to you, and, and that's all you're looking for, that you're just continually washing me? I'm so glad I'm not saved by my ability to confess every sin I've ever committed in my life. <laughs> you know, I'm so glad that he is so gracious and so merciful and I'm glad that all he asks is that we just come clean before him. The Bible says, he who, you know, he who covers his sin shall not prosper, but whosoever confesses and forsakes his sin, you know, that's the one that's gonna find mercy. Confession and repentance is what God's looking for. He knows our frame that we're simply dust. He knows we blow it. He knows we fail, and praise God, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus, the righteous. And he argues on our behalf because he paid it in full. But that's what the Lord's looking for, you know. A righteous man or a righteous woman doesn't make excuses for sin. They get right with God and they get back on track. And they do that every time they fall, you know. It's just, it's just what we do. The Bible says a righteous man falls seven times a day. To fall seven times means you need to get up six times. You know, you, you, don't, you, you can't fall if you're already on the ground. So the idea is, is that a righteous man falls seven times a day. It means when he falls, he gets back up, confesses it before the Lord, gets back on track. He might fall again, but then you get back up and you get back on track, right? So God knows our frame that we're dust, but what he's looking for is confession, humility. And since that's what it goes on here, since they respond to Samuel's argument, Samuel then gives them some encouragement. Look at verse 20. Samuel said unto the people, same thing Moses said to the people, don't fear, fear not. You have done all this wickedness, yes, yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Turn you not aside, for then shall you go after vain things which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. 
You know, just like Moses told the people God didn't come close to, to them to kill them, God, you know, Samuel confirms God didn't bring this storm because he, he's here to kill you. He was trying to confirm my words so you do what you just did. And now you have. So don't be afraid. He says, you have done all this wickedness. Everything I've said is true, but since you've repented, you're gonna find blessing. So stay here. (laughs) Stay in this place. Don't turn aside from following the Lord. Don't change direction from where you are now. Don't change direction from this heart of submission that you have now, you know? But serve the Lord with all your heart. Wasn't that what Moses taught us in the book of Deuteronomy? Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love God supremely, right? That's what God desires from us. It's the greatest commandment, to follow him, to love him supremely, to not love myself, to not do things my way. Because if they were to do that, Samuel repeats it in verse 21 for emphasis, turn you not aside. Don't go back to loving yourself. Don't go back to doing things your way. Why? Because that will lead to disappointment. For then you should go after vain things. It means empty things, worthless things, which cannot profit nor deliver. They cannot give you blessings and they cannot rescue you. For they are empty, worthless, vain. In contrast to that, the Lord is mighty to save and he's fully capable to meet every need you have. Verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. I love this ending of this chapter because Samuel covers three areas here, three parts. He says, first off, he says, God's gonna keep his end of the bargain. He's gonna do his part. And you know what? I'm still committed to doing my part. So this is my closing thought with you. He says, do your part and everything will be great. (laughs) God's already gonna do his part. I know that. I'll do my part. The only thing in question is, will you do your part? So let's start with God's part here. He says, why, you know, why, why, why not seek these empty things? For the Lord won't forsake his people. No matter how crazy your situation might get, you will never face it alone. I don't care who's invading. I don't care how precarious your situation looks. I don't care how, how great your army is and how bigger the other army is out there. I don't care what all the other kingdoms are doing around you. Here's the reality. If God is for you, you can't lose. He will never abandon you. He will never just reject you. He will not forsake his people. You say, Pastor, well, how do I know that? How do I know that for sure? Because life is scary right now. Let me give you two reasons, two reasons that Samuel gives here. The first reason is he says, for his great name's sake. That means he's going to do it because him not forsaking you shows his good character to others. Now, that's very interesting because by nature of of what he says here, it means that it is possible for God to put you, to put us as Christians in a difficult situation just so he can show someone else how awesome he is. That's truth. It's not exactly exciting truth, but it is truth. It's biblical truth, you know? Like we don't usually stand up and, you know, every day and claim that promise. God, you promised you're gonna put me in difficult situations to show someone else how awesome you are. Golly gee, gonna be a great day. But it's true, the Bible does teach that, you know? Very often, you know, our troubles have nothing to do with any sin on our part or even 
to teach us anything. You know, frequently people will come to me and say, I don't know, I've examined, I've looked for secret sin in my life and I, God's not convicting me of anything. And, and or they'll say, oh, I don't understand what God's trying to teach me through this. And I'll say, well, maybe he's not. And I usually get a funny look, like, well, then why is he letting it happen? <laughs> maybe it's not to teach you something. Maybe it's to show someone else something. Do you know that's the whole theme of the book of Job? It's the whole theme of the book of Job, you know? Everybody keeps coming to Job and saying, Job, it's, this is your fault. You got some secret sin in your life. He's like, I've asked the Lord. I got nothing going on. You know, <clears throat> Job, God's trying to teach you humility. God's trying to teach you this. He's like, I am humble. I'm, I'm crying out to the Lord for help. I'm totally dependent upon him. And then, of course, when God finally steps on the scene, what does he say? None of y'all know why I'm doing this. <laughs> and who are the people that benefit from it? You and me. We're the ones who benefit from it, from his story. In fact, in the end, Job never finds out why he went through all this mess. We're the benefactors of it. So sometimes, you might look at your life and go, God, why are you doing this? Why am I going through this? Lord, I, I'm loving you. I'm following you. I'm walking with you. Why am I here? What are you trying to teach me? And the truth is, it may be none of those things. It may be just for someone else to know him better through watching him work in your life. So here's the million-dollar question. Are you willing to let God do that through you? That's the first reason I can tell you that you can know for sure he won't forsake you because he will show his good character. He will protect his name. But the second reason Samuel gives here is he says, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. The word therefore pleased, it means to be in a state of feeling pleasure or enjoyment. Now that's interesting because they're not really prior to this in a good place with the Lord, right? And yet he still says, you're his joy. He has pleasure when he looks at you. I don't know about you, but when I'm doing stuff like this, when I'm, my heart's not submitted to the Lord, I feel shame. Like I, I think, Lord, don't look right now. But when he looks at you, when you're his kid, you're his child, he looks at you, all he does is smile, even if he doesn't like what you're doing because you're his kid. And one of the things I try to do with my children is I want them always to know that I, they are my joy, even, when I, you know, even if I'm not pleased with what they're doing. And I will frequently tell my kids when I'm disciplining them, and I will say, you are my son, you are my daughter, and nothing you can do will ever change that. I love you, I am glad you are part of our family, and I never will that change but I want to talk to you about your behavior. This is the Lord, his heart towards us. It's not that he just smiles and goes, oh, you're just blessed. He looks at our behavior and he goes, we want, I want to talk to you about this. We need to have a discussion. But his heart is always toward us. His heart is always towards us. We are his joy, even when we might be doing some things that turn his stomach. You know, God is happy that you're his. He loves you. And he delights in taking care of you despite all of your weaknesses and all of your shortcomings. Do you believe that? You know, the Bible tells us the reason we experience that, that shame and that, that, that torture, you know, is because we don't fully understand God's love for us yet. So 1 John chapter 4 tells us we've not been made perfect in love yet. 
So he tells me, he says, guys, whatever comes your way, if it's a crazy situation, know this. God is gonna, he's gonna cause his character to shine. So he's not gonna abandon you for that reason. But number two, he loves you. He delights in you. You're his kid. He is not gonna dump you on the side of the road. So God will do his part. Now Samuel, he may be stepping away from being their their leader, but he's not gonna abandon them either. He will do his part still too. Look at verse 23. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. I love what he says. God forbid, which means far be it from me. Never think this will happen. Because they said, oh, pray for us, intercede for us. You know, Samuel, we, we know we kicked you out, but we need you still. And he goes, I'm still here. I'm not going anywhere. And he says, and I will not sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. There is a sin of prayerlessness. There is a sin of prayerlessness especially for those who lead. You know, if you're a parent, don't sin by not praying for your kids. If you're not praying for them, who is? You know, if, if you're an employer, you know, don't sin by not praying for your employees. If you're not praying for them, who is? If you're a spiritual or a civic leader, don't sin by not praying for those who are in your care. It's one of the most powerful tools leaders have in their toolbox. You know, most of the time, you know, I'm trying to learn to be otherwise with this, but when, you know, I come to a challenge, you know, as a parent or, you know, whatever it might be as a pastor, you know, usually the last resort is go, I guess I should pray. <laughs> trying to make it my first resort now. Because it is one of the strongest, most powerful tools you have in your toolbox as a leader. Pray. You know, I love here that Samuel shows no resentment for how they've treated him, how they rejected him. That's because a good leader doesn't lash out at those he serves when they fail him. A good leader loves them to the very end, just like Jesus did. So love those you lead, even when they hurt you. That's what leaders do. That's what they should do. Samuel says, I won't just pray for you, but I will also teach you the good and the right way. Saul may be your leader in civic matters, but I'm still gonna teach you God's word, and he'll be faithful to do that. But... God doing his part and Samuel doing his part will only do the nation good if they do their part, if they have a heart that submits to the Lord. Look at verses 24 and 25. Only, which means how be it. You know, I'll do my part still, but you gotta do yours. How be it? Fear the Lord and serve him in truth. It means with sincerity, with loyal hearts. Serve him in truth with all your heart, with a loyal heart. For consider how great things he has done for you. He says, guys, love what God loves. Hate what he hates. Serve him with a loyal heart. Worship him only. Stop you know, going after idols. And if you ever struggle with whether God's way is best, consider, remind yourself of all that God has done for you all throughout our country's history. That's what he says. Remind yourself of all that God has done for you all throughout Israel's history. You know, one of the best things you and I can do when we're struggling with obedience is just to go back and read our Bible and see how faithful God was. It's one of the best things. You know, there are times, man, I've got, I'm just, I'm stressed and I am worried about something and I'm like, God, if I do this your way, it is going to blow up. It is not gonna work. And the moment I just start opening the word and just seeing how faithful he is, I just, all that just deflates 
I was like, man, what is, what is wrong with me? You know? Look at how good you always are. I mean, I could just keep turning the pages and always see how good you are, how you're always faithful. And then if I just turn the pages of my own life and see all throughout my history of how God's just always been faithful to me. You know, I remember one time I was whining to the Lord about something, and, you know, I just sensed the Lord saying to me, Will, you're still here, ain't you? And I thought, huh, I am, aren't I? You brought me every other crisis that I've come to you like this. And here I am still. I'm still breathing. I'm still living. And sometimes it's good just to take a step back and to say, Lord, you've brought me all this way. Why would this problem or this crisis be any different? It's good to go back to the Word. It's good to see how faithful God's been. Because we love Him. Why? Because he first loved us. When we immerse ourselves in God's love for us, it's how we find the power to obey him. But, verse 25, <laughs> if you don't do that, if you so still do wickedly, if you keep doing what's right in your own eyes, then you shall be consumed, destroyed, swept away. Both you, and here it is, and your king, he will not rescue you from me. Not even your king will save you from a heart of rebellion. So, let's have hearts of submission, guys. Amen? You know, let's experience all the blessings that God has for us. Let's all stand and pray. Oh, Lord, I read accounts like this, and I just think to myself, man, I'm so much like Israel. I see the invasion. I see the crises. <laughs> I start leaning on my own understanding. Lord, thank you for being always faithful. Thank you for being pleased to call us your kids. Thank you, Lord, for redeeming us from you know, not being your kids, from being alienated from you, from being estranged from you, separated from you. Thank you for bringing us into the body of Christ, that, Lord, it's not just our story, but it's all the stories here. We're all still here. And, Lord, until the day you call us home, you'll preserve us. You always have and you always will. So, Lord, with that confession in mind, we say, we submit to you, Lord. You're our king. We want to follow your lead. Trust you with all our heart and never lean on our own understanding. Make our path straight as we do so, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.